This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur. I'm David Cadavy from Love Your Work headquarters in Colombia. Yes, the country. I've interviewed titans of industry like Steve Case. I've interviewed best-selling authors like Seth Godin and James Altucher. I've interviewed experts on behavioral science, creators from dancers to a chef to a Hollywood set designer, and visionaries on the cutting edge of creative monetization, whether that be self-publishing or blockchain technology. And from these conversations, I pull out lessons to share with you on how you can find your unique voice as a creative entrepreneur, how you can nail the right mindset to succeed, and how you can be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. So if you are new here, welcome. Again, I am David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and get my free creative productivity toolkit. Sign up at cadavy.net slash tools. Sometimes an idea pops into your head and you think to yourself, nah, that's insane. I'm not doing that. Then you move on with living your regular life. We all have these ideas. Sometimes we don't even notice them. In the heart to start, I call the source of these crazy ideas the voice. It's this voice that you hear inside of your head, or sometimes you don't even notice it, but it's there the whole time. The thing is, sometimes these crazy ideas are what you call asymmetrical. Now, what that means is that it doesn't take much to try these ideas out. It doesn't take much investment, but the potential payoffs are huge. Now, our guest today has got to be the king of crazy ideas. Tynan is his name, and that's it. He just has one name, kind of like Madonna, Tynan. Just a few of the crazy ideas that Tynan has followed through on. He owns a private island, and it's not as expensive as you think. He lived in San Francisco, rent-free, in an RV for several years, and he also owns a minivan and a Bentley. Tynan is also a serial self-publisher. I have to say that watching his self-publishing story for me was personally a source of inspiration as I made the leap from traditional to self-publishing. I first met Tynan several years ago. He joined mutual friends of ours for dinner during my several-week mini-life in Austin. And when I met Tynan, I remember I thought to myself, if and when I have a podcast, this is definitely the type of person that I would want to have as a guest. Now, here's just some of what you're going to learn today. What thought processes can you employ to seek out interesting opportunities in your life? How can you prevent yourself from making an emotional decision about your crazy ideas and instead see the true cost-benefit of those ideas? And if you have a crazy idea, but you have hesitation about following it, what are some ways you can break through that hesitation and any other mental blocks that you might have in your way? Now here is Tynan. I am here with Tynan and uh, Tynan, just a little bit ago, we were trying to get this interview to happen, but uh, it turned out that you left your private island to go to a different private island. And so we had to delay it a little bit. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your private island? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it's five years now. It feels like a lot less than that. But five years ago, uh, we realized that islands in Canada were relatively inexpensive compared to other islands. And I just sort of have this crazy group of friends who are always sort of into these crazy ideas. And I sent out this email and said, Hey, guys, I want to buy an island. Here's the one I want. Who's in? And 24 hours later, I had enough people and we, we bought this thing. And so now it's five years later, we've got a yurt on it. We've got I just built a cabin for myself last summer, which is where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and basically, the idea is that it's like, it's like a summer camp for me and my friends. So we 
you know, we're all kind of nerds. We're all in front of our computers all the time. And it's a place where we can go and like set up solar panels and cut down trees and like try to build stuff. And, you know, we can get into all sorts of adventures like that. You were able to get what, how many friends to get in on this island within 24 hours. And, you know, it, it, I would think that an island would be quite expensive too. So uh, how were you able to convince so many people to get in on, on this uh, with was probably a non-trivial amount of money to, to buy this island? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest factor is just that I sort of have really awesome friends who are just like, open-minded and into like weird ideas. Um, and so 10 of us went in on it total. And I think within 24 hours, I had like six or seven people in and then a few interests. And I was like, well, that's enough. We can make it happen. And so we just sort of put out the offer. And, and by the time it was ready, we had 10. And, and you have internet on the island right now because we're, we're speaking through the internet. So I, uh, do you have actual, you know, Wi-Fi there? Or how does that work? Yeah, we have really, really good LTE coverage, which is like, it's the one utility that you can't replicate some other way. And so we got really lucky. I would have bought it even if we had no internet. But having internet means I can spend a lot more time here. I can work from here. Um, really, really pretty big game changer. Previously, when we were going to try to talk, I ended up having a little bit of a, a drama with my uh, immigration status here in Colombia, And so that was maybe like, 10 weeks ago or something. Yeah. And uh, mid-April. Mid and so since in between then and now, we've been trying to, um, you know, get the interview to happen. And uh, it seems like you've traveled quite a bit. Where, where are the places that you've been just in like the last uh, 10 weeks or so? Uh, so I, let's see, like Shanghai, Tokyo, Kazakhstan, Budapest, uh, then just like a few places around the US, like Vermont, New York, Boston. Um, and then, yeah, I think that might be it. Okay, it seemed like a lot more. And I saw your post about Kazakhstan. It seemed like you really loved Kazakhstan. So what was, what was it about Kazakhstan that you liked so much? And how did that contrast with what you expected out of Kazakhstan? Yeah, Kazakhstan was really amazing. Um, I literally expected nothing. I was actually there to speak on a, a panel of travel writers. And one of the questions they asked me on stage is like, you know, how did this differ from what you expected? And I thought, and I was kind of embarrassed. I'm like, I had no idea what to expect. I just knew nothing about Kazakhstan. Um, but I guess maybe in the back of my mind, I sort of thought of it as like a rundown, maybe like muddy kind of like deserty. I don't know, maybe not desert, but just like flat kind of boring place. Um, and in reality, it's like this really beautiful. I was in, it was in Almaty. Um, and so the city is just like stunningly beautiful. There's trees everywhere. And it's right next to this mountain range. It looks like the Alps or something. And you can take cable cars up there from the city. So it's like, there was a lot of really cool nature, but really probably the best thing about it was the people. Um, you know, we were hosted by some people who were just so kind to us. Like they treated us, us like they were their family. We actually went on this like big trip in the countryside with their family. Um, and even like in, after four days, I felt like, yeah, like we were friends for life. Like they could stay with me, I could stay with them. Um, and just everybody we met, even like their friends and their family and the organizers of the conference, everybody was just so warm and hospitable. It was really, you know, I've been to a lot of places and, and it's one of the more friendly places I've ever been. I, I think that there's like a theme that I'm seeing with the Kazakhstan, because I imagine you're going to go back to Kazakhstan at some point. For sure. I'll, I'll probably go every year. You like it so much. You know, you bought an island with friends. It sounds like you own property around the world with friends. And and you're not uh, Richard Branson. You're not like a multimillionaire or, or billionaire. 
and though it seems like you live that lifestyle and also you lived rent free in San Francisco uh, in an RV, which maybe we can talk about. Uh, is there some kind of a, a theme or, or, or philosophical underpinning to to how you are able to or why you value these experiences that are so unconventional? You know, I mean, I think it's maybe like I, I backwards rationalize the philosophy, but the way I see it, at least, is... Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the world doing a lot of things. And most people kind of do the same sort of things. And there's really, and you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what people want to do, that's totally cool. Um, but for me personally, I have this drive where I think like, well, if somebody else has already done it, or if a lot of people have already done it, uh, it doesn't mean it's wrong or it's bad, but maybe it's not going to be so interesting. And maybe if I just go do something different, you know, I'll discover something that then I can share like with my friends or kind of have a unique experience. Uh, even like in Kazakhstan, it really made me think a lot about how I travel. And I thought, you know, now that I've discovered that Kazakhstan is this really cool place, a place none of my friends have been, at least that I know of, now I can be like, hey, let's go to Kazakhstan. It's going to, you know, it's, it's a really neat place to visit. Whereas if I went to like, uh, let's see, what would be like a city I haven't been to? That, I don't know, like some, you know, maybe Seoul, which I've only been to an hour. If I, if I went there for like a week and said, hey, Seoul's really cool, Probably a lot of my friends would say, yeah, we already know that we've been there. So you were able to find friends to buy this island with you and then also to buy um, some apartments around the world with you. Can, can you think back to like of those friends, like who's maybe like the first one that you got to know and how did you get to know that person? Actually, the, the very first one is a really good friend of mine named Brian. And he was actually my first friend in the entire world. We went to preschool together. Oh, wow. um, and we, we actually lost touch for a number of years and we kind of got back in touch and turned out we had a lot of interest in common. Um, but I don't know if there's really a theme amongst these friends. I mean, they're really just a sort of very group of people that I feel like I've sort of picked up along, you know, maybe the past 10 years of my life. Um, and then, you know, I do my best to introduce them to each other and kind of create a, a friend group with all of them. And that's surprising because, I mean, it, I feel like I know a lot of interesting people, um, but it's still just even the idea of being able to get my friends to buy an island within 24 hours seems uh, seems pretty much Im impossible. So, so that, that's surprising to me that that you know somebody that you knew from preschool is in on that friend group. Um, so, is there um, is there anything? that you have learned over the years that has made you into this person who is not afraid to do these unusual things? Or was this something inherent to you? Or is this a, um, an attribute that you have crafted? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think I've always had the curiosity to do weird things. But it was tempered by thinking that maybe I shouldn't do it, that there was some fundamental reason I shouldn't do it. So you know, the first really big one I can think of was uh, at the end of high school, before college, I got a group of friends to buy a school bus with me. It cost $3,000. So there were like 10 of us. It's like 300 bucks each, 500 each, because I think we had to, we, we improved it. And as I was buying it, or as in the process, I told my dad about it, who's, you know, really supportive and has kind of always been on my team. And he said, you know, you always want to do these crazy things. And I know you end up doing them. But even when I say not to, but trust me, you shouldn't do this. this is going to be the biggest mistake of your life. And my dad is like a really smart guy, like really kind person, like don't have a single bad word to say about him. And so I took it seriously, but I still just kind of knew I was going to do it anyway. And I did it. 
And it turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. And what it made me realize was that nobody has all the answers, right? Including myself, but certainly including other people. And even people with the very best intentions who really want the best for me don't really know what is best for me. In fact, sometimes you don't know until you try it. Um, and I think that that one experience really blew the doors open for me. Whereas where I just sort of had this realization of like, okay, if I think something's a good idea, I'm just going to try it. And was that something that happened immediately? Was it just you had that experience? And from then on, every single time that you had some wacky idea, uh, you just went ahead and did it without hesitation? Or was there a process to, uh, to overcoming that hesitation? It was pretty much a light switch. Like I don't, you know, sometimes our memories aren't exactly accurate. As I remember it, though, I was on a road trip with like nine friends in this school bus. Like I think we were in California, but I don't really remember where we were. And I just remember looking out at the bus and thinking like, this is so cool. I've got all of my friends here. We're in this crazy bus that we built ourselves that like people said we couldn't do. We're on this road trip that like most people couldn't do. And I just thought like, you know, this is the best thing ever. I feel that way sometimes when I'm like traveling with my friends or like when I'm on the island. My family was just here uh, on the island with me last week and and I felt that way. And it was maybe like one of the first times I really had that feeling. And it just sort of, you know, I thought about what it meant and and where it came from. And, and it, I immediately thought like, oh, yeah, my dad told me not to do this. Um, and as I remember it, that was sort of a light switch moment for me where I was like, okay, from now on, if I want to do something, I'm just going to do it because I don't want to miss out on one of these. Do you ever look back on that and think that it was it was possible that you could have not had that experience and then that will, you never would have developed this philosophy and that would have changed the entire course of your life? It could have. You know, I mean, it's so hard to, to know what effects these things have. I like to believe that I would have found it some other way, but who knows? You know, there's, yeah, there's no way to know. But I also feel like I have the kind of attitude in general where like, if it was a colossal failure, and I guess in some ways it was, the thing died outside of Vegas and we abandoned it, you know, so we lost our money eventually. Um, but if that had happened on the first trip or something, I still sort of feel like I would have found a way to paint that as like a positive experience. Mm-hmm. Like even building it was really fun. Like we, we had a blast building that thing. Well, I mean, here's, here's the thing I'm kind of trying to figure out is that you had this experience, it was kind of like a light switch. And now from then on, you've uh, operated with this philosophy uh, of that if you have in some interesting idea or thing that you want to do, you just kind of go ahead and do it. And I know that there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who, you know, we, we get a, we get an idea like, oh, maybe I'll move to Columbia or something. And, and we run the risk of not doing it or not, not trying it, not going forth with it. So I wonder how much insight you have into, I know you do some coaching or you, you sometimes do live events with people who probably run into those sort of mental blocks. Is that something that you've seen? How uh, is there a fundamental way for people to, to break through that hesitation? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have a pretty strong gambling background. I was a professional gambler for many years, like eight, eight years or something like that. I was, you know, I did really well at like the World Series of Poker, all that kind of stuff. And so I have, I fundamentally am always sort of subconsciously calculating the odds for things. And if it's a big decision, maybe I even consciously calculate them. Hmm. And what I find are that there are a lot of situations, not just for me, but for, for people I coach, for friends, for, you know, for family members where you get into a situation where the upside is really, really big, maybe life changing. And the downside is limited and really not that bad. Um, so for example, the school bus, right? 
if we buy the school bus, it was 500 bucks each. Yeah, you know, you're a high school college student. That's not nothing. And it sucks to lose 500 bucks. But, you know, all of us could handle losing 500 bucks. And it's not like a life changingly bad event. On the other hand, buying the school bus, if it turned out to be a good thing, which it happened to, you know, maybe is a life changing experience because, you, you know, you forge friendships with these different people. You see parts of the world you wouldn't see. You know, I have this story that in some ways, you know, probably helped my blog, right? Like it was a big thing in my life. The RV is another one, another perfect example. So whenever I find myself in a situation like this, I have a massive bias towards doing it. And I try to push other people to do it because a lot of the times what's holding people back from doing it is that something feels like, you know, a all capital big deal. And that's only, you know, but it's not really a big deal. A lot of these things feel like big deals because maybe, you know, because there is that potential of upside and that makes it feel like there's some gravity to it. But then when you think about what's the actual downside, if it all goes haywire, it's often pretty small. And if it's not small, there are often ways to minimize it. It's funny, maybe maybe part of what makes it feel like a big deal is the is the fact that it's such an interesting thing to do. Right, that it's uncharted territory sometimes. I remember you saying that you have read this guy's books, but you weren't really into his writing style. But it makes me think of Nassim Taleb mm -hmm. and uh, and sort of the, the Black Swan, anti fragile uh, themes that he talks about. The idea of having uh, a bunch of small bets that have relatively low downsides, but have extremely high upsides, and. Um, I think that's interesting uh, that you were saying that maybe it was helpful for your blog too, because I think this is one of these things in in marketing or audience building that people run into a lot of times where they think like, oh, if I just keep doing this relatively uninteresting thing over and over again, which may include like uh, tweaking Facebook ads or something like, okay, eventually my, my audience is going to grow. When in fact, you can take the same energy uh, or even less energy sometimes. And if you pick the right thing to do, then uh, suddenly that's way more interesting to people and that grows your audience more. Is that something that you have found in, in running a blog? You have a quite popular blog. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Uh, I, th I think, I mean, that's certainly part of why I do weird things. Like whenever, e even before I had the blog, you know, I always like to be able to tell an interesting story. And so when I'd be getting into some weird situation, I would always think like, well, at least it's going to be an interesting story, even if it's a disaster. Um, and I also feel like in a world where there are so many people that are public and accessible and, and who are competing for your attention, like you really have to figure out what you, what's unique about you and then go full force on that. You know, like your strength is not tweaking Facebook ads, probably. Maybe it is, but for most people, it's not. And so I know for me, or at least I believe, you know, what, what my strength is, is doing weird things that other people aren't going to do and then trying to make them relatable to other people so that they can do the same thing or they can do like a scaled back version or learn from it, even if they don't do it. But I feel like a lot of people are basically trying to be like the next Tim Ferriss or the same, you know, and it's like, you got to do your own thing. I mean, I think one of the more interesting things that you did was live in San Francisco in an RV. Uh, how long did you do that? How did that begin? I think I lived in an RV total for, um, well, actually, it was a pretty long time, uh, maybe about six, six to eight years, something like that, seven years, maybe. Um, Whoa. Yeah, not all in San Francisco. I was in Austin for about two years, and then I moved to San Francisco because it gets pretty hot in Austin. Um, and it all started in, 
in like 2006 or 2007, I was in, in Austin. And actually, I, had, I was thinking about that school bus that my friends and I used to have and how much fun it was. And I thought maybe I could just buy an RV that just like my friends and I, my girlfriend and I could like travel around in. And so I looked online and I kind of like narrowed it down to a couple small models and chose one off eBay and just sort of like bought it that same day. There was a good deal. And I asked my girlfriend if she would come with me to pick it up. And she said, you know, I know that if I go with you, basically, we're just going to drive 24 hours straight. It's going to be not fun. So I'll go with you, but you have to agree to do three fun things on the way. And I said, okay, you know, I'll do the three fun things. And so we went to Carlsbad Caverns. We went to White Sands, New Mexico. Uh, and I can't remember what the last one is. But as a result of doing these fun things, we ended up living in it for a few days. And it was a blast. Like I really, really enjoyed living in this RV. And actually at the time, through sort of a weird situation, um, I had, I shared the probably the best penthouse condo in all of Austin. I had this like amazing place right on, on fifth and Lavaca. And I liked the RV so much. I never slept in that condo again. We sold it and, and moved into the RV. Um, so that's how it all got started. And so how does that work? You just go and park on, on whatever street, like how do, how do the logistics of living in an RV work? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of scary the first couple nights cause you don't really know what you can do and what you're supposed to do. And it sort of feels like everybody knows what you're doing. Um, but there's a restaurant in Austin that I really love. It's called Casa de Luz. It's a vegan restaurant, even though I'm not vegan. Um, and I used to eat every meal there. Basically I would eat lunch and dinner there every day. And so across from it, I knew that you could park there whenever you wanted because I would drive there all the time. And so I just lived there. I just lived in front of this restaurant for like months or maybe a year. Um, and you know, once you get used to it, you kind of realize like, okay, here's a neighborhood where I'm going to get complaints. Here's a neighborhood where I'm not going to get complaints. Uh, here's like what the legal, you know, rules are. So you kind of figure it out. I think one of the themes that I see in a lot of what, uh, what you do is finding the value in something that other people have prejudgments about that would prevent them from participating in that idea. Does that sound accurate, accurate to you? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it sounds 100% accurate. I think that's totally true. How do you look at the downsides of something? Like I think that, um, like if I'm thinking about living in an RV, I'm thinking about all my stuff. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, people harassing me in the RV. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of logistical details that I'm like, I'm, I, I start thinking, that, well, there's no way I could figure that stuff out. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, and so then I would just not do it. Right. So, but you go ahead and do it. So is there a way that you think about those things or do you just not think about those things? What's the way that you go about that? Yeah. So actually I had this exact scenario come up a couple months ago. I had a coaching client who was interested in moving into an RV, but understandably was like nervous about it. Like probably most people would be. And so we talked about, I'm like, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And it's like, worst case scenario is whatever, and you hate it and you want to give it up after a month or two, right? Like that whatever could be a million things. Can't find a place to park. It's too hot. People harass you. You know, any one of these things we can worry about. But you can all, you kind of boil them all down to like something happens and I don't want to do it anymore, right? Because there's like no outcome where it like falls into a pit and it's just gone, you know? It's like something happens, you don't want to do it anymore. So he was paying, I forget the number, but you know, 1500, 2000 a month for rent. And I'm like, great, you try it for 60 days. I'm going to guide you through it. Worst case, if you hate it, you sell it for a $1,000 loss and you've made $3,000, right? Like, so the worst case is you get $3,000 you wouldn't have had. And 
you know that it's not for you. Because a lot of people are on the fence about all these decisions like, should I freelance? Should I have my own job? Should I live in an RV? Should I be a nomad? There's a lot of value in just knowing if it's right for you or not. And, you know, sometimes it's not. I went on this big motorcycle trip and I thought, okay, well, you know, it doesn't sound like my ideal thing, but I'm going to give it a try. One of the good things to come out of it was, turns out I don't like motorcycle trips. So now I know that I don't like them and I'm never tempted to do them. Um, so like, I always think like, what's the, like the, the realistic negative side? And is there some way I can turn that into a positive? And, and usually there is. And how do you feel about uh, sort of testing or prototyping? Like in the, in the case of your, your coaching client who wanted to live in the RV, was it considered like, oh, well, you could rent an RV for a couple nights, keep your apartment, keep all the stuff, uh, test out the various, some, a few scenarios and see if you like it then. Is that something that, that you are a proponent of? I guess, I guess I'm sort of a proponent of it, but I don't really do it. Uh, you know, actually we did talk about that and I encouraged him to do it, but it, you know, the problem with that is that like to rent an RV and stay in it for like, first of all, you know, staying in it two days, you, you aren't going to know anything. So you have to do it for like a week, but to stay in an RV for a week, it's probably going to cost you about a thousand bucks to rent it. And it's also not really the same sort of situation. Like for example, the island that I'm on now, if, if we rented this island for a week, I would have no idea what it's like to own an island. You know, so we actually bought it and then we visited it. We actually camped on it the night before the deal closed just to make sure we liked it. Um, I think oftentimes you don't really know what it's like until you do it. And oftentimes the actual cost of doing something is much lower than it seems. So when, when you did go camp on this island the, the, the night before, what was that situation like? Was, were there any surprises there? Did you consider not uh, putting the deal through? No. So you know, a lot of times when people are thinking about the factors in decision, they're considering so many different factors that it all kind of gets mixed up and you end up making an emotional decision. So what I do is I think, what are the factors that actually matter to me? Because usually there's really only one or two. And for the island, I remember my one factor was like, is it a swamp? Like, if it's a swamp, then we can't do anything on it. So I'm not going to be interested. If it's not a swamp, we can pretty much turn it into something good. Maybe, you know, maybe we can't build buildings on it. So we'll just have to camp. Maybe, uh, you know, it's just going to be like a place where we have some canoes and we canoe around or whatever. Like, you know, but if it's a swamp, we can't do anything. So I got here, realized it wasn't a swamp. And as soon as I realized it wasn't a swamp, I knew we were going to do it. Now, I recently read your new book, Forever Nomad, uh, The Ultimate Guide to World Travel from a, a Weekend to a Lifetime. Um, and one of the things in there I that I found very interesting was that you own various apartments around the world with your friends. Can you tell us a little bit about which, uh, which cities do you, do you own apartments in and how does that arrangement work with your friends? Sure. Um, so, I mean, the island was the prototype for it and it, and it worked so much better than I ever expected. I... I split it with friends because I couldn't afford it by myself, not because I thought it, I wanted to share. I kind of wanted it to myself. And then it worked out so well that I was like, okay, well, maybe this could work for other things. So um, we bought one in Budapest, which is just like the best city in Europe, one of my favorite cities ever. Um, we we're working on one in Hawaii right now. It's just about done. And then uh, we also kind of have the same thing in Vegas where we're buying up a neighborhood. So there's eight of us that bought units in this neighborhood. Um, and we have like a waiting list and we keep trying to buy more whenever they come up for sale. Uh, and then we're trying to get one in Tokyo too. Um, and it's just, it's very, very easy. You know, I, and again, I think that like, it's all about the people. Like I just have the right friends to make this work. 
Um, I chose, you know, in each case, it's like a seven to 10 friends. Um, and they're people, my criteria, like, again, like there's like the one criteria that I use instead of a billion of them. And I'm just like, if I was in this place already and this person showed up randomly because they wanted to stay there, would I be glad that they were there? And would the other people there be glad that they were there? And if it's a yes, I invite them. If it's a no, I don't invite them. Even, even if I really, really like them. Um, and we've had a lot of success with that. You know, with the first one, with the island, we had all these like rules and voting and, and all this. And we've never actually used it because sort of I come up with some ideas or someone else comes up with ideas. And we have a Facebook group and we say, hey, we're thinking about, you know, uh, putting in solar. Anybody have an objection? And then nobody does. And we just do it. Um, so, yeah, it's just super, super easy. And you basically form a company like an LLC. Yeah. And then uh, everybody owns shares of that company and that company owns the property. Is that how that works? That's exactly how it works. Yeah. And do you rent out the apartments on Airbnb while you're gone? No, we never rent them out. Um, initially, we thought that we might. But the problem is that if you, you know, the fun of it is that you think like you say, hey, there's an airplane, there's a flight deal or I've got some miles. I want to go to Budapest this weekend. If you have to look at the Airbnb calendar and then you're like, oh, well, someone's there. I guess I'll go next weekend. Like, what's the point? Plus, you know, you can't leave your stuff there. There's like more wear and tear. Um, so, yeah. we and, and then there's also the factor of like, realistically, one person's going to do all the work. And then like, how are you going to divide that money in a way that makes sense? Um, so, so far, we haven't. I, we were actually talking about it today with, with one of the owners of Budapest and and. You know, if like the Olympics came or something, I think we would do it as like a one-time thing, but, but in general, we don't. We're going to take a quick break. If you want to be great at running your small business, you have to focus. But the pesky details make it hard to focus. If you have to worry about payroll and benefits for your employees, you can't focus. Do you want to spend your time learning the ins and outs of taxes and regulations when you could be running your business? I know I don't. Gusto makes payroll and benefits a breeze. 9 out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll services. 72% of Gusto customers say they finish their payroll in less than 5 minutes. And they have fewer errors. This must be why PC Mag gave Gusto their Editor's Choice Award. PC Mag said, Gusto is excellent enough that it might make paying your employees an enjoyable experience. Look, you don't have to be a big company anymore to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. Gusto does all of that for you. So to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash love your work. That's gusto.com slash love your work. I love having Earth Class Mail as a sponsor. That is Earth Class Mail. You know, like Earth that you're probably on right now, not First Class Mail, Earth Class Mail. What Earth Class Mail does is it digitizes your physical mail, it puts it online in a secure portal, and you can check your mail from anywhere in the world, never be tied to a physical location. That is so cool. You can imagine how much I love that. And you never have to waste time taking another trip to the bank to deposit checks. You know, you get checks from clients and other places that you make money. Earth Class Mail's tech automatically will recognize checks with their check stream service. Earth Class Mail will endorse and deposit checks to your bank account on your business's behalf. You never have to touch it. With Earth Class Mail, you can transform your office into a paperless environment. Scan documents, mail, other important items like invoices, receipts. They're all turned into fully searchable PDFs. Earth Class Mail has set up a special offer just for Love Your Work listeners. 
So listen up if you want to get 8% off the monthly plan or 10% off an annual contract. Visit earthclassmail.com and use the promo code LOVEYOURWORK when you sign up. That's earthclassmail.com with the promo code LOVEYOURWORK. Another thing from uh, from Forever Nomad that really st- struck me was uh, was your hard sell on uh, on Las Vegas. Yeah, of living in Las Vegas because for me, I think I think Las Vegas, and this seems to be reaction of a lot of people that I've talked to about this, is like I really don't like Las Vegas, but. You made it sound really appealing. Good. Can you give a little bit of your hard sell on on uh, what? So that's your main home. That's your your home base, right? Yeah. Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And so, what is it that you love about that? I oh, I've always loved Vegas, but I but I only knew and only loved the Strip. I was a poker player, and I like I love the sound of slot machines. I like the buffets. Like I really do like the Strip. Um, and when I and so the whole reason I bought a place in the beginning was because I thought I come here anyway for poker. You know, it's they're like the prices are good. It seems like a good thing. I'll just buy it. Maybe come occasionally. Never thought it would be my home base. And when I told people, people from Vegas, that I was doing this, they said, "Oh, once you move here, you'll never go to the Strip. You only stay off the Strip." And I thought that's crazy. I've been coming here for ten years. Of course, I'm going to be on the Strip all the time. I love it there. I live ten minutes from the Strip, fifteen minutes from the Strip. Um, and it turns out that outside of the Strip is like this whole awesome city that has like really incredible high quality food. There's like a lot of fun stuff to do. And it's just easy. You can park everywhere. Uh, You know, you're five minutes from the airport. You're like, you know, the prices aren't ridiculous. It's like you go to San Francisco now, city that I lived in and and love in a certain way, but it's like, everything's artisan this, artisan this, and it would cost 20 bucks, you know, for like a piece of toast. You go to Vegas and you get the best food in the world and you're sitting in a fold-out chair and it's like five bucks or 10 bucks. Um, so I sort of have this contempt now for like these big cities like New York, uh, LA, San Francisco, where I feel like the value proposition they offer is like, is gone, right? Like, I feel like it's too late. I'm for with you. Cities. It's a total sucker bet. Yeah. That's how I feel. And I feel like they used to be like, when I was in San Francisco at first, I was like, damn, this is like the best place on earth. I don't see why everybody doesn't want to live in San Francisco. And truthfully, I was probably a little bit late to San Francisco. Um, but now it's like, I feel like they're riding off their cachet and they're just not that great. Whereas Vegas, everybody has this knee jerk like, oh, I hate Vegas. Vegas sucks. But it turns out it's like the best place to live. We all love living there. And one of the things that, that I found really compelling was the idea that uh, and maybe this isn't always the best reason to live somewhere, but that it's easy to get out of Vegas yeah. and go other places. Uh, some of the best air airfare to places all over the world, right? Yeah. I mean, especially in the US, like I get $20 flights to San Francisco all the time. You can get $20 flights to even cheaper sometimes to L.A., like I went for five hours. $20? One, yeah, each way. Um, I, I went to visit, I, my friend had a dinner uh, for her birthday in San Francisco. I went for five hours just to go have dinner with her. And it's probably cheaper than if I, you know, if I, I could do that every week, it would be cheaper than living in San Francisco. Um, you know, it's, it's not the number one cheapest place for international, but it's pretty close. Like, uh, I think especially if you factor like Asia plus Europe, like, yeah, it's, it's like pretty close. And like, you know, if you're in San Francisco, you have to pay 20 bucks for like a lift line or 30 bucks for a lift. New York is like 50 bucks. In Vegas, it's like $3 sometimes, you know, and it's like a 10 minute ride. It's really easy. Um, so yeah, I, I think for a nomad, you know, if I had to live there full time every single day, 365 days a year, maybe I would choose somewhere like New York or San Francisco just to have a little wider access to stuff. 
But if you're, if you're a traveler, I, I think it's, it's easily the best bang for your buck, but even just, you know, money aside, I'd rather live in Vegas and San Francisco at this point, if I'm going to be there six months a year. Now, what about, uh, you know, I believe you have a, a minivan, which is one of these things right. that I think people would have a knee jerk reaction to. And then do you still have a Bentley as well? Yeah, it's being repaired, but <laughs> we got T-boned in it. So what's the, I mean, th- that's an unusual combination of cars to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's the thought for process behind th- those decisions? I've all, so the, you know, when you were talking earlier about like capturing that value, everybody's scared of Bentleys because they think that it's like the craziest thing to maintain. And, and there is some truth to that. Like it's not a cheap car to maintain, but of course I did my research. I've always loved Bentleys. The 99 Bentley Arnage, it uses a BMW engine and a pretty standard transmission. So the big stuff can be worked on by like any shop. Um, and you know, in our world today, we have a lot of fake luxury, right? Like if you ride in a new BMW, it's not leather. It's like, you know, fake leather dashboard, a lot of plastic, like, you know, I'm not saying it's not a good car. And at the end of the day, who cares? You get from point A to point B. But it gives the illusion of luxury, whereas really it's not, you know, what makes it so luxurious. The Bentley, especially in that era, was really made by hand. Like I've taken mine apart to put in some, to put in a stereo. And like you see the like handwriting, like the pencil markings from the person who put it together. It's all hand built. The headliner, you know, the part above you, the ceiling is leather. And the only leather they use are from these cows that are in this pasture that doesn't have barbed wire because they don't want nicks in the leather. Like it's just, you know, it's not fake wood. It's like hand, like hand laminated and pressed wood for everything. So I like the idea that it's like this real luxury thing. And it's like, in some ways, it's the best car man has ever made. I mean, it sort of depends what your criteria are, but in, you know, by my criteria and by certain criteria, it's the best car man has ever made because they don't make them like they, like they did then. And it's also the number one most appreciated car in the world. My car, when it was new, was the equivalent of about $300,000 in today's dollars. I bought mine for 20000 bucks, twenty twenty three $23,000. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, it's funny because people think it's like this frivolous thing. And I'm like, look, you're leasing an Acura that costs twice as much. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, if you can afford to buy a Bentley cash and all you've ever, and you've always wanted this Bentley, why not buy it? Um, and again, like to me, the downside was, okay, worst case, I, you know, I sell it for $5,000 loss, which would be like, you know, it would, it would get snapped up in a day for 5,000 less than I paid for it. But a lot of why I wanted to buy it is I was just so curious. What's, what is it like to ride in a Bentley? I had the opportunity to ride in, uh, actually Rick Rubin, he's a famous producer to ride in his Bentley in 2003. And I did, I didn't take it cause I was kind of confused about the situation. I was like, Oh no, it's Okay. And I always wondered what that car would be like because I thought it was such a cool car, same car as I have. And so I thought, okay, well, worst case, I sell the thing, I lose $5,000, but then I know what it's like to have a Bentley. Um, and so, so that's that. I've always loved minivans. My dad had one and he, he was a carpenter, a handyman. And I was always, he was always so proud that it could have a four by eight sheet of plywood in it. It was even the first Chrysler, uh, Caravan or Chrysler uh, Dodge Caravan could hold a, a four by eight sheet of plywood, which is just a standard building size. Um, and I, you know, I had this place in Vegas. I was doing a lot of projects on my own, and like it just always seemed like I needed to like move some furniture, or pick something up, or get a, get plywood. And so I rented a minivan, and it was such a pleasant experience to have this minivan that I thought, well, let me see how much they cost. Maybe I'll buy one. 
and nobody thinks minivans are cool, so you can buy them for next to nothing. I bought mine for twenty five hundred bucks. It has, oh yeah, it's like a ninety or two thousand five, perfect condition, one hundred ten thousand miles. And what's cool about the Dodge and Chrysler minivans is that they have a patent, and all of the seats in the rear, the middle and the rear seats, fold flat into the floor. So you can have, you know, you can be driving, picking up your mail, eating lunch, and you say, "Hey, let me go to Home Depot, get a bunch of lumber." In the parking lot, in about two minutes, you fold all the seats flat, and then you fill it up with lumber and you drive home. Um, you know, I also have a lot of friends that visit me in Vegas, and so then I can fit six of them plus me in this car. Minivan is basically the best car in every single way, except that it doesn't look cool. But you know, who really cares? Honestly, when I drive the Bentley around, I feel like a little bit embarrassed because I feel like people think I'm trying to be so cool with the Bentley. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a little bit refreshing driving the minivan because nobody thinks I'm cool in that thing. You have to tell us how, how it was that you had the opportunity to ride in Rick Rubin's Bentley. Uh, yeah, I was. It was back in the. I, I was involved in in the game and the pickup thing and all that, and I was living in that house in, in like 2003, 2004, and through Neil Strauss, the guy who wrote the game and, and who lived with us, uh, I met Rick Rubin, and we we all had dinner together and some other people. And then we were all going to meet at this club afterwards. And I was confused. I thought it was a different club. And so we kind of get out of the restaurant. And I just start walking to the club, I think. And Rick Rubin pulls up. He's like, hey, man, like, you want to ride? And I was like, and I thought I was a block away. I was like, oh, you know, it's okay. I'll just go there. And then I walk to the club. None of them are there. And I text them. And they're like, no, 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 you're at the wrong club. And so I had to take a taxi or whatever. And I missed the chance to ride in the Bentley. And, and so you were the character Herbal in, uh, in the game. And... Uh, I believe that's another one of these things that people will likely have some kind of a knee-jerk reaction to. Uh, what what would you, what's your assessment of like the the reaction that people might have about uh, pickup and the value that you personally got out of that? You know, I think there's obviously a pretty negative knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people, um, and I and I totally get that, right? Like, it's not like this is some mystery to me. It's like, what you know, this is a totally great thing. Um, in fact, hey, you know, to be honest, when I got into it, maybe I, you know, maybe I didn't think it was such a great thing, but I was like, hey, I, I need this, right? Like, I don't know how to talk to girls. I need to learn something. So even if it's a little bit seedy, I'm going to get into it because what are my other options? I mean, I was embarrassed about it. I hid it from my fa- family and friends until I agreed to move to LA. So nobody knew. Um, and then I got into it and I, I was really surprised. I mean, it, it's... I thought that I was learning like little tricks to, to get a girl to like think that I'm someone I'm not because actually the way, you know, my perception was shaped maybe by the media or people around me or whatever was that probably girls wouldn't really like me. I wasn't that cool. I was a nerd. I was the guy who loved his graphing calculator. I liked video games. I liked the internet. Um, and I basically thought, Hey, like the kind of girls I'm interested in probably don't have any interest in me because what do I have to offer? You know, I'm not seeing anything on TV or t- or movies that show girls interested in guys like me. What I learned through pickup is that actually, you know, hey, look, not every girl is going to be into every guy. It's impossible. But if you're living a life that you're proud of and you're doing things that, that you find interesting and you figure out a way to communicate those things to a girl in a way that's not needy, in a way that's in- interesting to her, in a way that shows an understanding of her experience in this world and even in like a male to female interaction, you know, there's a good, you're maximizing the chances she's going to be interested. And there are some girls who are interested and they're actually sick of every other guy who's just trying to be like the cookie cutter cool guy. Um, so for me, it was, it was a remarkably positive experience. 
Um, I, I was very shy. I couldn't tell a good story. I, I had just no idea what it was like to be a woman in a dating situation. I like, I didn't know what their concerns were. I didn't know what their goals were. I didn't know how they perceived things that I might do. I mean, I just had, you know, I had no idea I was swimming in the dark. Um, so for me, it was a really valuable experience. It, you know, changed my relationship with women. It changed my relationship with my friends, with my family. Uh, I'm married now. I'm certain I wouldn't be married or, you know, if it wasn't for pickup or at least not to an amazing woman, like I'm married to now. Um, so yeah, for me, it was, you know, for me and my friends, it was a really positive experience. I have seen people that I think have sort of perverted it and, and, or have used it for, you know, ends that I don't personally think are ends that I would use it for. But, you know, that can probably be said about most things. Now, what about self-publishing? I remember listening to your interview on Noah Kagan's podcast and you talking about your, your self-publishing. I realized like, oh, you have been self-publishing books on, on Kindle for like 10 years now. Yeah. Um, which that must have been like just as that was becoming available. Yeah. How did you get into that? And was that anything that you resisted at all? Because I think, you know, a lot of people, they think, oh, I'm going to write a book. I better go find a publisher. I, I have the opposite. I mean, I just have like such an aversion to red tape and interference that like, mm. I mean, I've been, you know, I've, I've had a publisher contact me and, and, and so I got on the phone with them and I like, after one conversation, I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm doing this. What was, what happened in that conversation? A lot of it was, they were running through the numbers with me and, and, you know, my interpretation of it was like, I'm going to do the same work I do now. You're going to have some say in what I do. And then you're going to take some of the money. Like, and even the way they were like, they were pushing it was sort of like, oh, it's like a prestige thing. Like if you have like a, you know, a book by a publisher and like, when somebody's trying to sell me something as a prestige thing, like instantly, I don't want to do it. You know, it's like, if that's the value of this is that I'm going to have some like, it's like when, when, when the blogging company I started called set folded, I had like a pretty big blogging platform contact us and they were like, wanted to buy it for nothing. And they're like, you know, cause then you can spin it as this acquisition. I'm like, oh, like, give me a break. I have no interest in that. <laughs> okay. You know? Um, and so, yeah, like, the, like it seemed like probably I would make more money just doing it myself. I would have all the control. And they were like, they were like, really wanted, they were like, you know, like, do you ever do speaking things? Cause that's like a great way to sell books. And I'm like, uh, like they've got this agenda. I don't want to be a part of this. And so you just started publishing things on Kindle and, uh, I mean, 2008, I think was your first book. Was that, was, was that like when it was just first available? Uh, what, how did that begin? Yeah. I mean, I actually think I published even before that, I think like 2004, 2005 with create space on the, the printing on demand. Mm paperback. I did that before Kindle. Um, and I just had a friend who, who I, I had, I was a professional gambler for a lot of years. It sort of ended suddenly, didn't know what I was going to do next. And I had this friend who was a, a successful, actually he's in Austin, this guy named Mike Dillard, like successful marketing guy. But I looked up, you know, I look up to, he's a very smart guy. And he's like, Hey, you never wrote a book about that pickup thing, huh? And I was like, no, I'm, you know, I'd never written a book at all. And he said, Oh, that's, that's weird. Cause that's like a pretty unique experience. You could probably write a good book about and I, it, it had never even crossed my mind until he mentioned it. Went home. I used to have this thing called the Libretto 110. It's this tiny laptop, seven inch screen. The whole point was you could like fit into your pocket if you really jammed it or if you had like skater pants. And I wrote the entire book in 48 hours, my first book on that little tiny computer. Um, and it did pretty well. Like it didn't do amazing or anything, but like, you know, it immediately made money. And it, I, you know, I still to this day, like I think it's pretty poorly written. So I keep wanting to take it off off Kindle and off CreateSpace. 
And every time I look at the numbers, I'm like, I still make a few thousand a year. I like, I guess I'll keep it, you know? Um, and yeah, and it, and because it worked, then I wrote other books and yeah, i just, I just keep doing it. I might be done now, but I don't know. <laughs> so, so now you have like 10 books, right? Yeah, seven. Yeah. So how has, you know, your ideas about books changed from, you know, your first book that you published until now? Uh, I don't know that it really has. Uh, uh, well, that's not really true, I guess. The first one, I spent a lot of time on the layout. Like, I really wanted to make it like this cool looking book with like, you know, inverse colors on this page. And like, I, like I did like all this crazy custom design stuff. I went really deep on that. And I sort of realized nobody cared, right? Like, like they were psyched about the information. Like, you know, I got all these emails where people were like, hey, like, I was a virgin and now I've got a girlfriend. Life's great. So thanks. And like, nobody was like, hey, really cool formatting. Um so I kind of went in the opposite direction where after that, I was like, okay, well, if I don't worry about the formatting, I can get these books out faster. And then people got pissed off because I, I forgot to put page numbers on the books. And so, so now I do a little bit more. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess my general philosophy, which has maybe been refined a little bit over that time is like, my only goal is to put out information that's going to be like really valuable to people. And if I do that, I feel like they're going to overlook a few typos, like overlook the fact that I'm not Hemingway. It's not like beautiful prose. It's just like clear, hopefully decent writing with like really valuable facts in it and really actionable advice. Um, so that's sort of like that. Those are the kind of books that I like personally. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I try to do. Were there ideas about books that you had uh, along the way that you decided not to write because of something that you learned in the process of uh, writing and publishing and marketing these other books? Um, the only one I didn't write, I actually wrote it. I wrote a book called Life Outside the Box. And I got, it was like a pretty cool book, I thought. Um, and I, like, actually, I kind of forget what it was about, to be honest. But it was sort of like about like making interesting decisions, having a weird life. And I got all these like cool people to write guest chapters for me. And I wrote to Tucker Max to ask him if he'd write a guest chapter. And he said, well, you know, send it to me. Let me take a look. And he read it. And he was like, hey, I think this is good. But I feel like you could do better. And I feel like there's no point at the end. He's like, I read the book and it's well-written and there's good stuff in there. And I leave it having no idea what you want me to do. And it was like really thoughtful advice. Like he's not a guy I know really well at all. And like didn't owe me any feedback or anything like that, right? He could have just, you know, if he was like, hey, thanks, not interested, would have been totally like socially cool. And so I read it and I was like, that's really nice of him to give that feedback. I'm going to like think about it. And I like his books a lot. And I read it and I was like, you know, you're right. There's, there's no point to this book. And so I never published it. Huh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, it sounds like an interesting book. Um, I think it was interesting, but not actionable. So, and, and that's one, like the it's very consistent feedback I get is when I have actionable stuff in my books, people love it. And when I don't, they really don't care about the book. I don't, I don't know. Like probably I should have just done it. I, I, I think that like, I, he made me feel like I had blinders on. I was like, Oh, I thought this was a good book. Like I thought that I had this nailed and I, and, and it turns out I don't, maybe I can't trust my judgment on this one. And I think I just sort of lost enthusiasm for it. Like I'd done the sprint of writing the book and I just like, wasn't that interested in doing it again. So I think I, I think I turned a lot of the topics into like blog posts. I feel like you might, you might've got the same reaction from him. Uh, if you would send any of your other books that you, you now have out in the world that are doing fine. I mean, do you feel like that? a possibility? Uh, it's, it's possible, but I don't think so. I mean, I think it's like, if you read, uh, superhuman by habit, I think that was the book that came out after 
I think that was probably the next one I wrote after that. Super actionable book, and people love that stuff. And then, and then I did yeah. social skills one. People like that. You know, that had actionable stuff. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, it's, uh, I, I read it, and I was just like, I, I sort of maybe felt like maybe I was writing it because I thought it made me look cool, or it was like, it was maybe espousing a certain lifestyle without really giving people the tools to get that lifestyle. Um, Mm. And I don't know, like actually this first time I've thought about this book in years, so it's not like really in my brain, but I just remember sort of having this feeling of like, you know, anything I sell, whether it's cheap, whether it's expensive, like I want it to be a really good value for people. And like, you know, not everything's right for everybody, but I want to like reasonably be able able to believe like, Hey, this is like, if somebody buys this, it's going to be a good thing for them. Like people buy my travel book, impossible to me that somebody could not get enough value out of that to, you know, to justify the time and a few bucks for it. And I think that book, I sort of felt like, huh, yeah, maybe people could buy this book and maybe they'd feel like they got their value, but maybe they wouldn't actually get, you know, anything useful out of it. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll look at it again. So, and what about the, the, the income from the self-published books? Is it, is it a surprise to you in one direction or the other? Uh, has there been anything that you've learned along the way with that? So what's surprising to me is the longevity of it. Like, I, you know, I mean, I just had no idea. I was writing a book just to write a book and just to see what it was like. And it's like, I think for the first one, there's some element of like, hey, I've never written a book. Like, let me just see what it's like. And, you know, can I write one? Tick it off the bucket list. Um, the longevity, it was really surprising to me. Um, you know, like I still make money on this book that I wrote over 10 years ago. Um, and uh, Superhuman by Habit was my most, my most commercially successful one. It's, I think, the one that people like the most. Um, and it's, it'll still, I don't know why, just like randomly it'll have some months where it makes like, I don't know, like $7,000 in a month, right? Which it hasn't made since it first came Whoa. out. Yeah, for like no reason. And then it'll, then it'll go back down to normal, like the next month. And I try to search for links, can't figure out why it does. Um, so it's kind of interesting that that, that, that happens. Um, I, I wrote one called Around the World and 15 Friends. It's just, people always like it when I write like little travel stories on my blog. So I thought, hey, let me like flesh them out, make them like nice, write 15 travel stories, put it out in a book. I made no money on that one. I probably literally made less than $1,000 on that book total ever. Um, hmm. And that blew my mind because I just, before that, I sort of thought, I've got these readers, like they'll just kind of buy anything I put out as long, you know, and as long as they don't get burned on a book, they'll probably buy the next one. Um, and yeah, I was shocked. Nobody bought it. So, so that, that was, that kind of reinforced like, okay, I should write practical things. Well, I mean, what I see going on there is that habits, that's something that people are searching for on mm-hmm. Amazon. There's probably uh, some good subcategories that the book fits into that people are actively looking for books on that topic. Yeah. Do you think that's something that's going on? Is, and is that something that you've tried to incorporate in any of your future books? Uh, I think it's totally true. And I'm totally unwilling to play the game. I guess like, <laughs> like I just, you know, I, I definitely care about money. I don't want to like seem like I don't, but it's nowhere near my top priority. So like if, if I have to fill my days with marketing st- and there's nothing against marketing, I just don't personally enjoy it. Right. It's just like not my thing. So like if I have to fill my days with marketing tasks and like trying to game the system in like Amazon, like, uh, like I'll just do something else. Like to me, that's just like, you know, luckily I'm at a point where, I don't have to do things I don't want to do for money. And that's like at the top of the list of things I don't want to do. Um, so yeah, so I just have no interest in that. I'll put up books, you know, I, I want to cater to, to my people. I don't try to even grow my blog. I have maybe 
10, 15,000 people that read my blog regularly. And I'm just going to write for them. I want to write stuff that's valuable to them. And, you know, if that makes me money, that's great. If it doesn't make me money, fine. I'm still going to write for them. Are you still writing a book on every cruise that you go on? Uh, or was that a thing that you ever did? <laughs> yeah, I, I always did that. Um, I shouldn't say every single one. I always have a very like set task for each cruise. And it's almost always a book, like more than 50% of the time it's a book. Uh, but uh, on a couple cruises, I've done different things. And, uh, and can you give us a quick hard sell on cruises? Because that's another thing that I've never done before. Oh, man. (laughs) You got to do a cruise. Um, So it's funny. I was actually writing a post that I haven't published yet, but I was writing this post about uh, like how to do big blocks of work or something like that. And I was trying to come up with examples. And I realized that nearly every single example I had, like most of them were me on a cruise. Um, It's just the number one best environment for work. because you have no responsibilities. Like you don't cook food, you don't make your bed, you don't have to do anything. And then there's no like ad hoc responsibilities. Like, Hey, can you help me do this? Or like, Hey, I need someone to move my couch. Or like, Hey, do you want to go see a movie? Like you just can't do any of that. Cause you're on, you're on a cruise. Like my house could burn down and I would just keep doing what I'm doing. Cause you can't get off the cruise. You're in the middle of the ocean. You know? Um, so there's something very freeing about knowing like, okay, I've got, and I always do the long cruises, like 15 day, you know, cruises if I can. So I'm like, okay, I've got 15 days to get work done. You can do just about anything in 15 days. You can easily write a book. I wrote like massive parts of cruisesheet.com, my, my cruise site in, on, on a 24 day cruise, like the bulk of it I wrote on that cruise. Um, and so because you have this finite amount of time, like I know that I'm not going to have the same schedule outside of the cruise. So I'm like, okay, I've got these 15 days. What's like, let me break down this task into a daily task. So for a book, maybe I have to write, I kind of forget the numbers right now, but like maybe I have to write 4,000 words per day or something like that. I think that was my task. Pretty easy to write 4,000 words in a day when you have nothing else to do. So I just know that it'll get done. So anyway, that's why I like that. That's my number one reason <laughs> is for work. But on top of that, the other nice thing is like when you're working, it's nice to take a break. You just go upstairs and you have a surfing machine or you have like crazy water slides. Or you have like a huge hot tub. Um, you know, you're eating amazing meals. Like I ate a dozen lobster tails on a, on one once because I love lobster. You can eat all you want. Um, you, uh, you know, it's a great time to like spend quality time with your friends. You get these two hour fancy dinners with like steak and lamb and lobster and you don't have to clean up. You just sit there with your friends. Um, it's just great, man. I love it. And then, you know, you stop in these various ports and a lot of them are places you know, speaking personally that I wouldn't visit otherwise, or I, you know, I wouldn't take the initiative like the Azores. I've been to a bunch of them and it turns out they're really cool places. And you wouldn't know that if you didn't have that day in Ponta Delgado or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think it's like a really great combo of like getting work done you know, there's always a gym on board. So there's no excuse not to work out because you just take the elevator up and you're at the gym. It's like, I would live on a cruise ship. I mean, it's just an awesome, awesome environment, but you have to make your own, you know, bring, bring some friends or at least one friend and you kind of make your own fun and make your own, you know, use it as a, a blank canvas and then build your own world in it. Tiny, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's been, you know, years since I still first thought, oh, I'd love to have this guy in my podcast. So it's great to finally make it happen. Uh, do you have a, a final message for people out there who are, you know, trying to find their own, uh, you know, unexpected value out of life and what they do. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like I could go on for about an hour on that alone, but I guess like, you know, bullet point things I think are like the most important are like, if something seems too good to be true, it might be, but you don't really know till you investigate it. And like so many things in my life are things that other people thought were too good to be true, but I did a little bit of footwork and found out they're not. Um, and then I think the other one is like, do what you want to do and just do that as well as you possibly can. Like be you and be the best version of you. It's like, sounds cheesy to say it that way, but a lot of people are like, they're trying to do what has worked for other people rather than what, what will work for them. And I find that like, if you follow what you're most interested in and try to make that profitable or try to make that into a business, that's often more successful than trying to force yourself to like something that you think is a good business. Mm-hmm. Tynan, thank you so, so much. Where can people find more of you? Uh, my blog, Tynan.com. Uh, I'd say that's probably the main one. I'm on Twitter and all that too, but, but mostly just Tynan.com. And then if, you, if, if my, if my uh, cruise hard sell sold you, cruisesheet.com. Great. And, uh, and also your books on Amazon. The new, the new book is Forever Nomad. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Tynan. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Is Love Your Work helping you find the intersection on your love and money Venn diagram? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation to make you into the person that you want to be? If so, we, together, you and I, can make this the show that we want it to be. I'm trying to make a nourishing and thoughtful show, and I could use your help with that. Please donate to the show. Just a coffee a month will help support the hosting and production of this show. Just a coffee a month will help spread Love Your Work's message, helping more people live a balanced life with a healthy definition of success. To donate, visit our Patreon page at kataby.net slash donate. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me, Vote with your dollars and keep Love Your Work going at kataby.net slash donate. As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at kataby.net slash donate. That's kataby.net slash donate. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini sponsor Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankovicius. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs> <laughs>